Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 11, The Corbomite Maneuver. yourselves a glass of tang wait we mean tranya and join us for another episode of mission log a roddenberry star trek podcast i'm john champion and i'm ken ray you're listening to the podcast that dissects every episode of star trek that ever was or ever will be and gets to the heart of the matter or sometimes the antimatter are there morals and messages in a show from the mid-20th century that still have meaning in the 21st and will they help us get to the 23rd on today's show, a fearsome alien named Balok is not too pleased at all with the Enterprise or its inhabitants. He has decided they need to be destroyed because of their violent nature. Kirk, of course, politely disagrees. It all comes down to a new element to add to your periodic table. It's the Corbomite Maneuver. I love that. Yeah? <laughs> I love you know, the- I heard that. Uh, I heard that Apple was coming out with the new uh, Corbomite uh, Unibody Max. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If uh, if if you drop it, oh, bad times. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> if your uh, if your web browser crashes, then the entire house comes falling down around you. You know what I like to do every week, Ken, is I like to uh, pepper the podcast with a little trivia. Oh, that's not what I was thinking you were going to say. But go ahead. No, well, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to lay some trivia on you. So here's the thing. This episode is unique because it is the first regular episode of the original series that was filmed. So we had The Cage and we had Where No Man Has Gone Before, pilot number one, pilot number two. And then they go into regular production. Great. We got the order to go. Now we've got to go shoot an episode. This was actually the first one. But here we are, 10 episodes into the show. Hmm. Um, and we're we're just now seeing this. So. There are all these firsts. There are all these new things going on here. Like it's the first time we actually meet McCoy, which to us, to the viewer, we feel like he's been around all the time. Right. It's the first time we meet Uhura. It's the first time we meet Yeoman Rand. So that's what makes this really stand out. And and I want to point out that uh, this is the first time that Spock utters the phrase fascinating. (laughs) And he was directed to downplay it. To, to not be emotional about it at all. And there are a lot of people who kind of point to that moment and say, this is where Spock started. They say that that was a really great moment to inform how we got to know the rest of Spock. I thought that was really cool. Um, but the long, long and short of it is that there are just so many little discrepancies here. It'd be tough to mention them all. Um, you know, all of you who are watching along with us, look for the costumes, the nomenclature. Um, Balak says that he's from the First Federation, but Kirk says that the Enterprise is a United Earth ship. Um, so are all these little bits that don't quite add up. But well, well, I think the characters are there. Oh, yeah. This, I mean, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but this is just a fantastic episode. But the whole thing with mm-hmm. the First Federation... I know you're going to get to the story in a minute, but I think that's just Balok doing what Balok does. I'm, you know, oh, you're big and powerful? Well, I'm bigger and more powerful. Oh, you're from the Federation? Well, I'm from the First Federation. I mean, I think, I don't think that was really a discrepancy as much as, um, (laughs) as much as Balok, you know, waving something around. Well, so you think Balok is like the guy who goes on internet message boards and types first? Yeah. 
Okay. Right. <laughs> That's exactly what he is. Sure, because oh, you know. Sure. Well, no, and well, we we really shouldn't get into dissecting Baylock until it's actually time to. But sure, um, of course. Um, yeah, well, a couple I, I, the first Federation thing that didn't strike me as a discrepancy at all. It was just it's like when you're a kid and you're like, I'm invisible, and the other kid's like, Well, I'm invisible, and also you can't hit me. You know, it's like okay, you're just you're just making stuff up now, aren't you, Baylock? <laughs> if that is right. even your name. Right, which apparently it is. Yeah, I guess. But, um, all right, so uh, a couple of production notes here. Uh, Jerry Soule, he uh, wrote this episode, and he was also a ghostwriter on a handful of Twilight Zone episodes, including one of my favorites because it creeps me out to no end. It is The Living Doll. And uh, the director of this episode was Joseph Sargent. Now, this is his only episode of Star Trek. I'm kind of surprised by that. Because he's directed just a ton of TV, uh, particularly out of TV movies. And he directed a lot of my, well, one of my other favorite shows from this era, which is The Man from Uncle. And um, I would have liked to have seen more of Joseph Sargent's stamp on Star Trek. Um, and finally, we have to mention that playing Little Baylock is <laughs> Clint. I'm going to refer to him as Little Baylock. Um, Clint Howard. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows this. They should know this. But Clint Howard, who has had such an interesting career, and he's a really unique-looking guy, and here he is at six, seven years old playing the alien, the the first alien, really, that the Enterprise encounters, this crew of the Enterprise encounters. I'll tell you what's most interesting to me about this episode. Um, Clint Howard's in it, and yet it was not directed by Ron Howard. Yeah, shocking, isn't it? <laughs> uh, because I believe Ron Howard started his acting career about the age of five, so uh, or directing career. Yeah. Well, I, th- I just thought that's how uh, I thought that's yeah. how Clint Howard got most of his gigs. Okay, enough with the Clint Howard jokes. Tell me what's going on with the crew of the Enterprise. The Enterprise is out doing boring space stuff, mapping stars, you know, the usual. Then a cube-shaped object shows up and blocks their path. Spock is curious, but Navigator Bailey is kind of weirded out when it won't move. Captain Kirk is called to the bridge. Cut to the credits. Act 1. Kirk has been getting his annual physical from Dr. McCoy. This involves being shirtless and glistening, while McCoy ignores the red alert beacon and makes Kirk use the upside-down Stairmaster. McCoy ignores the red alert, but when Kirk sees it, he calls up to the bridge. Spock requests that Kirk come up soon, and Kirk gently chastises McCoy. When Kirk arrives, the object is still off the bow, and no one really knows what to do. Bailey recommends shooting it. Act 2. At a conference, Spock announces that the object may be a marker, or it may be a trap. So this is either a good or a bad proposition. Bailey is still all gung-ho to shoot the thing, but Kirk says he just wants to plot a path to get out of the way. This plan fails. Then the object starts emitting radiation, and Kirk has no choice but to destroy it with a phaser blast. Bailey is a little slow on the uptake, but he finally makes the shot. Act 3. The Enterprise is okay, but the crew is a little rattled. Kirk confers with Spock, but decides to press on with the prospect that they will find the intelligence that created the object. McCoy tells Kirk he is a little worried about Bailey. They have a drink in Kirk's quarters while listening in on Bailey's battle simulations on the intercom. McCoy is convinced that Kirk is pushing young Bailey too hard and the pressure is going to make him crack. Yeoman Rand breaks in for a moment to bring Kirk a sensible salad for dinner. 
Apparently, McCoy didn't like what he found during that physical. Dinner is interrupted with a call for battle stations. This time, for real, it's not a drill. There's a new, much larger object on the way. Kirk heads to the bridge in time to see a giant spherical ship seemingly made of glass bubbles approaching. The larger vessel captures the Enterprise in a tractor beam, which starts overloading the Enterprise's engines. Kirk gets the phasers ready, but he wants a good look at this behemoth. Billy is a little too stunned to pay attention to the captain's orders to reduce the viewscreen magnification. The Enterprise receives a message from Balok, identifying himself as the commander of the Fisarius. He states that the earlier destruction of the cube has indicated that they are a violent race and will need to be destroyed. Kirk readies a recorder marker to be launched as a warning to other ships, but Bailey, still a little stymied, is slow on the uptake. Again. The Fisarius lets loose with a volley that destroys the marker and rattles the Enterprise. The real warning comes from Balok. Start praying. You've got ten minutes to live. Kirk gives a little pep talk to the crew, who also heard Balok's threat, about their peaceful attempt to understand. Then Kirk gets on the horn to Balok to say... Okay, really, we'll just turn around and scoot on out of here. Bailey is slow in setting the course, but it wouldn't have mattered anyway since the Fisaria still has a strong grip. Now, Balok appears in a visual message repeating the warning. He's a large cranium alien with a gray complexion, and he's a little stiff. Now, Bailey starts really freaking out. Act 4. Spock is pretty well resigned to this whole thing being a losing game of chess, uh, as the countdown continues, Bailey absolutely loses it, and Kirk makes McCoy remove him from the bridge. When McCoy returns, he's got words for Kirk, reminding him that he pushed Bailey too hard. And he'll say so in the medical record, and he is not bluffing. Kirk lashes back at McCoy, but wait, this whole talk of bluffing gives Kirk an idea he picked up from poker. As his bluff, Kirk makes up Corbamite and tells Balok that the Enterprise is just lousy with the stuff. Any energy expelled by the attacker will result in a chain reaction that destroys the attacker as well as the target. Kirk is needling Balok a little more. The humans have such little regard for life that they should just get their mutual destruction over with right away instead of counting down. The countdown winds up. No destruction. Balok says something like, um, wait, um, we're going to think this one over. Now, Balak dispatches a smaller ship, which will tow the Enterprise to a planet where the crew can be held. The small ship is strained while towing the Enterprise, and Kirk finds a moment to break away. In that moment, the towing vessel is disabled, and Kirk sees a chance to beam over and rescue any alien crew members on board. He brings McCoy and Bailey with him. What they find is Balak, a crude maquette. And then they find the real Balok, who has the look of a human child, only he's bald, talks like an adult, and likes to have a cocktail, too. He's lonely, you see, and he was just making sure that the Enterprise and its crew is really on a peaceful mission. He's looking for friends, and Bailey, now a little calmer, decides to stick around to learn from Balok. It's like an exchange student program, and Kirk will be glad for a little peace and quiet on the bridge. <laughs> Wow. Do you think Kirk was really just sick of Bailey? I, I mean, you know, he's, <laughs> I, I, think, I think Bailey just sort of winds up Kirk. I just think he's pushing all the wrong buttons there. Well, uh, but, but it is interesting that McCoy says, I think that you saw a little of yourself 10 years ago in yeah. Bailey. Yeah, yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, that's I, I'm getting about whether or not Kirk is just, you know, sick of Bailey. But you, you can certainly <laughs> yeah. see Kirk being a little bothered by Bailey because he obviously saw a lot of potential. Um 
McCoy is worried that 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 Kirk uh, promoted Bailey too early because he saw so much of himself in him. Yeah, and that is, you know, if there's one thing you hate, it's somebody who's exactly like you. Right. <laughs> because right. I mean, the, oh God, I hate that he does that. Oh, I do that. Ugh. Right, right. Yeah, really, I was more taken with the fact that Kirk's just willing to leave a member of the Enterprise on the uh, ship of, of of an alien that they yeah. just met like 10 minutes ago. I mean, not counting the 10 minutes where it was going to destroy them. That was a little surprising. Right, right. <laughs> well, see, I, I, I vacillated about Bailey. Like, I, I like – I think in the end, I like the character because he does have an arc. He mm-hmm. does change. He does yep. grow. Yep. And he's kind of the stand-in for us. You know, what What would we be doing on a ship that is almost certainly about to be destroyed? So we can kind of relate to him. I, I think it's a little over the top, but hey, <laughs> that was the choice. I'm all right with that. Yeah. Um, and now some other interesting kind of character tidbits here that we, we started on in the trivia. Um, we very much begin with the old Spock. He's just yelling out orders, you know. Yeah. He's uh, he's not the kind of cool, calm Spock. But we get that later. So yeah. we, we start to see his evolution. And um, remember how much I, I mentioned liking uh, Joseph Sargent as a director. I don't know if it was his call or his uh, his DP, but the handheld camera stuff, some really sexy angles of the bridge. Yeah, it reminded you know what it reminded me of honestly was the J.J. Uh, Abrams uh, Star Trek reboot when we see uh, Spock going the first time up the turbo lift into the bridge. Yeah, absolutely. And we follow absolutely. over his shoulder. I mean, I wonder if he actually, I, I wonder if he copped that shot from this episode because could they, be they reminded me very much of each other and also made the bridge a bit more of a real place. Like, oh wow, we're walking in to right. this you know to this thing that yeah, for the most part uh, tends to be fairly static as far as. Uh, as far as the POV. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there were a few moments and we get to see uh, stations on the bridge that, that we never get to see. Yeah. So, okay. at, at the same time, taking the camera close to them, there are also these screens that just have lights behind them. I mean, not even like <laughs> right. a display. It's just sort of like, it reminded me a little bit of the roller rink when I was a kid, you know, like oh, yeah, right. that weird sort of, you know, diffused light behind um, that screen that's not doing anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, I, you know, other things that I noticed, you know, I, you love to point out that space, working on a spaceship is just kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's nothing really extraordinary about it. And we really start this episode with that in mind. Yeah. It, it's just people doing boring <laughs> space stuff. <laughs> These are stars that no one has ever seen before. And Bailey is like, oh, yes, take a picture. It's all beautiful. Right. <laughs> um, <sighs> you know, here's another first. Um, we have the first uh, McCoy, I'm a doctor, not a dot, 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 you know, is a little bit different. He, he says, what am I, a doctor or a moon shuttle conductor? And, and my note on that was what? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It just doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue. Yeah, not quite, <laughs> yeah. especially, well, and, you know, plus there's no moon. No, I, yeah, I, my favorite, right. uh, my favorite line actually from McCoy in this one, and it, and it did make me laugh, was the one. Where he sees the red alert and and Kirk is annoyed that he saw the red alert but didn't stop the physical, and mm, yeah. uh, and you know he's you saw that light why didn't you tell me and uh, right. and he leaves and McCoy says to himself if I jumped every time a light came on around here I'd end up talking to myself which I think is funny right. you know it's right. a cute and yes. I remember that line I don't remember the last time I saw the Corbin might maneuver but I remember that line it's cute you know you and I are both very much on the same page about 
Shatner mm-hmm. because it, 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 people imitate him and all this stuff. But you and I keep finding in this show that his acting is really solid. Mm-hmm. It's really good. You, you can call it stylized, but it is solid. And I think this is one of those episodes where he is terrific because he's the tough captain to start. He, he dresses down uh, McCoy. He um, he has that little back and forth with uh, Spock. He certainly dresses down Bailey. Mm-hmm. But you have a lot of nuance with his character and his growing frustration with Baylock, his visibly being concerned about the fate of the Enterprise mm-hmm. and maybe not knowing the right course of action. I think all of that was golden. Nuance is a good word for it, actually, because there's the other thing where he um, – so Baylock has said – to the crew of the Enterprise, because we find out that he's not just talking to the bridge. He's talking to everybody on the ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, make peace with your God because yep. your butt's mine, right? Right, right. And, and, and Kirk then gets on the horn to the Enterprise and does this whole, you know, here's what we do. We're, we're, we're peaceful people. We do this whole thing. There's no wink. There's no nod. But it becomes fairly obvious that he's not just talking to his own crew. He's saying this for the benefit of Baylock as well. Right. And there's just, I mean, it's a fairly, it's a fairly easy trick. But there's, you know, there's no, there's no, oh, there's no, hey, I have an idea. There's no, there's no light bulb moment as far as yeah. over Kirk said that he's going to do this. I mean, he's just, it's just Shatner sort of, uh, I mean, of course, well written, but mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. also playing it with, with, you know. Not quite deadpan, but not with a wink either. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is not, this is not, aha. It's, it's more, you know, just nuance it, is a good term for it. Yeah. Well, it's playing the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's, it's without that sort of self aware, you know, ironic, look what I'm about to do. No, it, it is completely playing the moment. And I think it's really effective in this episode. Speaking of great moments, can we talk about McCoy a little here? What do you want to talk about? I, I want to talk about how he has some fantastic moments in this episode. It's the first time we're meeting McCoy. It's the first time that DeForest Kelly has worked on Star Trek, if we look at the production side of things. And he is so at home. He's so at ease. And we don't get the McCoy-Spock banter, but we get a lot of McCoy-Kirk banter. And, I, you know, talk about grounding the show. This is what you and I like so much about Gary Mitchell is that he really makes it real. I, I love DeForest Kelly. You've talked about it before. There's sort of an earthiness about him. There's sort of a, there's, yeah. I mean, he's a doctor, mm-hmm. but he's also an everyman. And there's one that I think he would hang with. I'm a doctor and an everyman. You know, <laughs> right. I'm a doctor, right. not a philosopher. I'm a doctor, not a you know, moon shuttle you know, captain. Yeah. Or I'm a doctor, not a guy talking to himself when nobody else is around. But he is an everyman. He is, yeah, he is an everyman. And, 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 and it's played that way. It's played very well that way. So, yeah. yeah and with, and how I'm about that you. scene? How about that scene where they're having a drink? I immediately thought of the scene in the cage mm-hmm. between Captain Pike and Boyce, Dr. Boyce. Well, and this again, this again too is, um, I mean, it, it does lend itself to the whole first episode thing that you were talking about. I mean, if this had been mm-hmm. the first episode, I mean, I always thought the, the exchange between Kirk and Bones in the man trap was a good one because Kirk is obviously uh, comfortable enough with his chief medical officer that he can rib him about, aha, we're going to see your old girlfriend. <laughs> right, right. You know, but in this one, he can, you know, he can, you know, sit down and have a drink with him and also do the whole... You know, you always say this. I don't say that. 
You always yeah. say this. I don't say that. Okay, there's, right. <laughs> there's, a, there's a cute little, not quite Abbott and Costello, not quite Laurel and Hardy, but there's a cute little, ah, come on, I know you. Yeah, you don't know me. All right, you big lug, you know me. Right. Drink up. Right, right. Um, hey, and uh, oh, oh, by the way, we, we have to say that uh, Clint Howard, mm-hmm. little creepy, but awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think it's kind of fantastic. That actually, uh, the, I think that describes Clint Howard's career. I think it does. A little creepy, <laughs> but awesome. He's. Right. I mean, I, I made fun earlier of you know he gets his jobs by um, by you know his brother directing movies, and I think it's more like his brother does put you know him in his movies. But um, uh, Clint Howard did Gentle Ben, and that yeah. was you know that was long as you pointed out that was long before <laughs> Ron Howard was directing I don't think as right. a as a precocious 8 year old he was get that bear over here I got an idea right right yeah right so creepy but awesome the Clint Howard way hey and um it, you know I'm going to break with the format of our show just a moment here because we don't like to talk about what is to come mm-hmm. in Star Trek um but I I just have to mention that you know, the story about the development of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, is that um, Nicholas Meyer saw Space Seed, or no, I'm sorry, Harv Bennett, I think, saw Space Seed. And there's that line in there where uh, uh, Spock says, well, what do you think would happen if we came back in 20 years after they've abandoned Khan on this planet? And I couldn't help but think the same thing about Bailey and Balok. So Kirk now has just left behind this emotionally charged kind of immature crew member with Balok, this um, creepy but awesome alien intelligence, and uh, said, "Okay, you know, we'll uh, we'll we'll come back and get you later." (laughs) You know. So, do they are are they besties? Do they are going to have their own adventures in space? Or if we came back and checked on them in two weeks, it's like the odd couple and, you know, they've got a line down the middle of the apartment and Bailey stays on his side and Baylock stays on his side. And, you know, they, they, they fight over the remote. I, I just <laughs> I could see this going one of two ways. Well, again, we, we know so little about Baylock when Kirk agrees to leave Bailey with him and when Bailey agrees to stay. I mean, who's to say that um, who's to say that Bailey lasted past dinner? Right. And who's right. to say what Baylock has for dinner? I'm just right. saying there's a lot we don't know. So, yeah, it's possible two weeks later that, um, <laughs> that it would have been an odd couple thing. Or it's possible that two weeks later, uh, Baylock is still picking Bailey out of his teeth. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so so I say for another Star Trek movie somewhere down the road, we just revisit Baylock and Bailey and <laughs> see how that whole thing is going. <laughs> It's an interesting story, but it feels like there's more here than just an interstellar odd couple. What is really going on in this episode? So, Ken, I I think that this episode, it's one of those where on the surface, and maybe it's just from watching it from when I was a kid, I kept thinking, okay, it's, it's a bad alien, but it turns out to not be a bad alien isn't that nice. And now getting to watch it again a few times in prep for this episode. I I liked it so much more, and I found so many more of those kind of Star Trek moments, those kind of Star Trek lessons in here that that I really enjoyed. And um, we'll definitely get to it in our wrap-up to say what was the big message and do they hold up. Um, But there are a few lines here that just really stood out to me, like Kirk, uh, you know, you and I both were so impressed with his speech 
to the Enterprise crew, thinking that they were facing death. And he says, there's no such thing as the unknown, only things which are temporarily hidden or not understood. And this is a great plea for peace and understanding. Now, he's doing it, obviously, with the knowledge that Balak is listening in Mm -hmm. as well. Um, But it really does set the tone for everything about Star Trek. It's also a great plea, not only for peace, but for, um, for, you know, sort of facing or overcoming your fear. Yeah. Because, I mean, uh, the unknown, even though it is the mission of the Enterprise to seek out uh, and and contact alien life, um, I mean, the unknown is scary. Mm -hmm. And and to say that we're not going to be governed by that is, um, yeah, it's a pretty powerful statement. Yeah. Well, and, and he follows that up in this conversation with Spock, where, where Spock kind of questions. And actually, I, I'm sorry, it takes place before that moment um, when Kirk is trying to decide after they've destroyed the cube, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. Do we go forward and risk seeing this intelligence created this cube that almost killed us? Or do we turn around and put our tail between our legs and go back home? Kirk says, hey, what should we do? And Spock says, well, you're going to find this thing, and I don't know if you're going to like what you find. Mm -hmm. And Kirk says, aha, remember? And he sort of puts Spock in his place. (laughs) He says, you know, first of all, this is our job, is to go into this, and I'm fine accepting the risk on that. And by the way, Spock, you're here to be my sounding board. I'm the captain. I get to make the decisions. (laughs) And then we revisit that a little bit later. See, I feel like you're assuming what Spock was going to say, though, because we never actually get to the part where Spock says what he's thinking. I think we, we, we were sort of led to believe that what Spock would say is logically we need to get out. But mm-hmm. what Spock says is, if you're asking me logically, and what mm-hmm. Kirk says is, I'm not. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> right. we don't really know. And this, this again, I, I know I'm going to end up with a uh, with a reputation for being the anti-Vulcan. <laughs> but I mean, if we assume that what Spock was going to say is let's get the flock out of here, you know, then mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of an indictment again of the Vulcan way. Logic is not necessarily what's going to move us forward. I mean, we don't get to the aha moment if we do the logical thing, you know, right. forever and ever. We do. I mean, we end up with, you know, some very rational, reasonable, um, you know, probably low key decisions. But uh, we don't get the aha moment. But I'm not, I don't feel safe in assuming that what Spock was going to say is let's leave. Because well, logically, it, logically, they yeah. do also have a gig. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. That they and and that is kind of an interesting paradox about Vulcans is that everything is dictated by logic. Then, well, you're probably not in the business of exploring too much, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yep. uh, until there is a need for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what did you make of that line where Balak says uh, over the intercom and in the Enterprise that he assumes that the crew has a deity or a deities or some such beliefs which mm-hmm. comfort them. Well, um, he's gone through the uh, memory banks of the Enterprise and found that for most of human history, we do. Yeah. I mean, I know you and I have talked about and, and we've had some interaction with, uh, with people who have uh, listened to the show mm-hmm. um, about whether or not uh, there is still a heaven and a hell and a god and a devil as far as uh, humanity is concerned. But even if there's not, we're only talking about 200 years from now. And we've got thousands of years before that of of written history that shows, yep, worship the sun, worship the thunder. Yep. Right, right, <laughs> right. Worship well, this well, god and this god and this god and this god. 
And, uh, and you know, assuming that we are part of the history that he's reading, I mean, as, as, as recently as 2012, if you can think back that far, right, uh, you had right. entire parts of the planet going nutty because they felt like somebody had slighted their deity. So yeah. we're not nearly done with this as you and I sit here and record this. So for, for Baylock to say, you've probably got, I mean, because it's like the whole, uh, it's like the whole you know, deathbed conversion, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe the crew of the Enterprise and, and Earth and humanity and, and, and the Vulcan on board, maybe they all shook off the idea of, of, of God and the devil as recently as 150 years ago. 150 years is a blink of an eye, even in human history, let alone the rest of it. So there is a chance that, you know, having shed that idea with 10 minutes to live, we might go, hey, you know what story I remember? The one where I pray <laughs> and this all ends up being all right. Right. <laughs> Let's tell that story again really quickly. We've got like nine and a half minutes. I think you can remember the words. Let's go. <laughs> well, you know, what, what it took me back to is that moment in the cage where uh, the, the the keeper, the Toulousian mm-hmm. uh, cage master, <laughs> says, <laughs> uh, you know, sends Pike to hell. And he, he calls it a legend right. from Earth's past, you know. And, yeah, I, I kind of picked up the same thing here with Balak, although – yeah, he gleaned the information from the memory banks. You know how how immediate is that? How, how important is that to the crew? Because nobody really acknowledges that, right? Because you know, then we get launched into the speech uh, by Kirk about you know this is our job and we are here for peace, and he's kind of making this last great stance about what they really stand for. And Kirk's not saying now go pray. Right. <laughs> you know, right. he's saying we're out here to do a job. Yeah. You know, so I, I thought it was a very interesting contrast, those, uh, those two ideas. Well, Kirk's doing more than that. Can I, can I? Yeah, can, totally. Can, all right. Mm-hmm. I submit to you this idea. The Corbomite Maneuver is an examination of the five stages of grief, or, or it can be seen that anyway, or seen as that anyway. I okay. Think. And so I, to talk about what anybody is doing is... I mean, to try to figure out what anybody is doing, if 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 we can hang with this, mm-hmm. then everybody's playing a part in the five stages of grief. And I don't know who's grieving. I don't know if it's – I think it's the entire enterprise. And we're seeing different – we're seeing different people play different parts of it. Um, quick refresher. The five stages okay. of grief are denial and isolation. That's one. Anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. This idea to me starts with two of Kirk's first lines uh, when he is being worked in the um, in the uh, examination by McCoy. The upside down stairmaster. Yeah, yes. the first thing uh-huh. Kirk says is "You're killing me," uh, followed by the line "You're killing me." <laughs> All right, and obviously he's yep. you know he's speaking in hyperbole, right? But if we take this idea. Everybody just seemed a little weird. Like you keep talking about how on edge Bailey is and, and, mm-hmm. and, and McCoy is very, you know, single minded. Let me go through them. Denial and isolation. This is Dr. McCoy all the way through, starting mm-hmm. with the examination. He sees the ship's alarm, but he keeps on with the physical because you know what? Doesn't matter. I, you know, la, 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 la. I'm doing what <laughs> right. I'm doing, right? Fingers right. in my ears. I'm pushing forward. He knows that they're in danger, but he keeps writing Kirk about his treatment of Bailey all the way through the episode. He is making plans. <laughs> when yeah. Baylock gives them 10 minutes to live, McCoy comes in and says, all right, when all this like, you know, almost being killed business or being killed business is over, you're going to have the answer for the way you treated Bailey. Yeah. Death is not part of McCoy's thinking. 
And you could argue that he's denial and isolation at this point. Anger. This is Bailey and a tiny bit of Kirk. Bailey's bothered that they're just going to sit there and take it. He wants to blow stuff up. He's bothered that Sulu is just, you know, counting down the minutes, all 10 of them until they such die. A great, such a great moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. And, but, yeah. Kirk, but, but there's a little bit of Kirk here, and this could actually be mm-hmm. the whole Bailey and Kirk being, you know, so similar to each other when, when Kirk was younger. Because Kirk also flares into anger from time to time, but does not, you know, does not have as much of it or does not succumb as much to it as Bailey does. Yeah, he, he snaps a few times, and, and that's what we were really talking about, the, the nuance of his performance, is that he's yeah. got all of these layers of how Kirk is processing the information. Right. Uh, bargaining. This is Kirk with a tiny bit of Bailey. And again, this is where we get them you know, sort of being two sides of the same coin, um, mm-hmm. or the same side of two coins minted in different years, depending on which way you want to look at it. Uh, Kirk is looking for a way out all the way through. He tries trickery. He tries reasoning, which may just be another you know form of bargaining. Um, this was actually one of the first things that Bailey said before he went truly nutty, though, on the bridge of the Enterprise. He says, you know, let's find out what they want, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, because he's looking for a way to not die. Right. That's bargaining. Uh, Depression. There's a tiny bit Spock and a tiny bit everyone else. Spock starts to express regret. And then he, you know, remembers, oh, wait a minute, I'm I'm a Vulcan. He's tr- he starts to express regret, you know, that, that all he sees here is the losing side of checkmate. Yeah. But but then being a Vulcan, he doesn't linger on the thing. He doesn't he doesn't say I'm sorry, which he starts to say, but he stops halfway through the line and just, you know, then goes ahead with um with his analytical assessment of the thing. Um now there he's on his way to acceptance. Uh, Sulu merely counts down the minutes. And mm-hmm. it's a job, maybe, but it's also a rather uh, depressed or depressing uh, way to spend your last minutes. <laughs> right. I'm not saying you want to quick grab a book of theology, but do you also want to sit there and go, well, I'm going to die in eight minutes. Oh, 7.59, 7.58, 7.57. And he's not even <laughs> like, okay, two minutes, we better do something. He's just like, two minutes. Yep. One minute 30. <laughs> right. One minute, Captain. And then finally there's acceptance. And this is everyone. Bailey comes back to the bridge at the very end, mm-hmm. having having gone, you know, total freak out about the whole thing. Um, Kirk and Bones actually make up before before what they think is going to be the ultimate end. Um, Sulu is just still sitting there doing his gig and Spock is still sitting there analyzing stuff. They've accepted what's going to happen to them. And now they just sit there uh, waiting for obliteration without losing their heads, without going nutty, without changing their beliefs. I mean, they just, you know, it's it's like, OK, well, this is it. Yeah. And that to me that to me is what and and I thought it the first time I watched the episode and I went back to watch it to make sure and it's quite possible that I am laying a layer of stuff over this episode that was not intended by the writer but it works so well that I have a feeling that that was in there and if it wasn't it should have been because I mean that this strikes me as an examination of how we face death. Yeah. Or, well, or, or I, I think or everything that you said is is absolutely fascinating and absolutely spot on. And whether or not it was intended by uh, Jerry Soul, who wrote this, I think is irrelevant. You know, the point is you have the Enterprise crew facing death. Every one of these characters is going to react in some way. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the new and interesting thing, even on top of this, is when you get to acceptance – there's almost this um, 
how would I put it? There's almost like this embrace of it. Because, you know, again, we keep going back to this speech that Kirk gives. And he's talking about this is this is what we do. And, you know, we are proud of ourselves for being peaceful um, in his head. Of course, he doesn't know what's going to happen. Right. Um, but he's saying that there there is nothing to fear. There's there, there is no unknown. There are only things that we don't understand. So whether or not that means facing the enemy or facing death, it's only the thing that he doesn't understand. You yeah. know. So there, there's kind of an embrace of that. Um, I, it, this may be getting way off topic, but uh, not too far though. But I remember um, this rather contentious interview on Piers Morgan. He was interviewing Penn Jillette. And um, Piers Morgan was kind of needling Penn Jillette saying, well, aren't you afraid of death? Aren't you afraid of what comes after? And Penn said, Penn said to Piers Morgan, well, why, why would I be afraid of that? He said, are you afraid of the year 1850? And he said, no. So, so why would I be afraid of the year 2050 or 2150 or 2250? I, I, I have no understanding of it. You know, so why why would I fear it? <laughs> you know, hmm. now that's kind of a, an interesting intellectual challenge for yourself. Um, but I, I feel like the acceptance here goes that extra level and it is typified by what Kirk says yeah. in that moment. You it's, know? Not, it's not really fair for Ben Gillette to say that, though, because he knows all the tricks. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> He seems to be able to catch a bullet through glass in his yes. teeth. Okay. Yes, he does. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking may, maybe he's not afraid of 2150 because he knows something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> not to make too much light of it, but uh, yeah. I, I, apparently, I'm stuck where Bailey was stuck as far as that whole thing is concerned. <laughs> There's one other thing that I will say about this show, and this may actually be – I don't know if this is the message. It's probably not the message, but it is the message that I choose to take – with me, even above mm-hmm. the whole five stages of grief thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this episode actually nearly made me tear up, mm. which is weird because mm-hmm. I don't think an episode of Star Trek ever has. Once we're done with the not dying and not being stranded on a new planet thing, uh, Kirk makes the case for humanity being what humanity wants to be rather than humanity being what would be easy or instinctive. Uh, mm-hmm. Baylock has threatened to kill. Or strand the crew of the Enterprise. The Enterprise ba- breaks free, as you said, leaving uh, Balok stranded and on the verge of dying himself, as far as they know. Um, it's very obvious that what the crew of the Enterprise wants to do is 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 hightail it. They mm-hmm. want to leave. They they have no interest in approaching uh, Balok's ship. And Kirk decides to go back and offer assistance. And his thinking is, the mission of the Enterprise is to seek out and make contact with alien life. This is an opportunity to demonstrate what our high-sounding words mean. And that was the line. And, and if I think yeah. about it too much, you, you may even hear it right now. That was the line that did yeah. it for me. It is something that we today seem to be missing more and more. Now, I don't know what we're like five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now. I have no idea what we're like. But today, we as a society have given up a lot of what we claim to prize. We're holding people indefinitely in a prison that is neither here in the U.S. nor there, wherever the people that we're holding are from. Mm -hmm. This part kind of scares me, and so I'm going to go ahead and do it. I mean, this is kind of like living (laughs) up to the whole – this is kind of like living up to the whole Kirk thing, right? When the U.S. decided to try 
Khalid Sheikh Mohammed for masterminding the attack of September 11th, 2001, the Justice Department initially decided to try him here in the States, yeah. in the U.S., on U.S. soil, in our court of justice or in our system of justice, right? Right. And this idea was eventually shot down. It was even mocked recently by a guy talking to a chair. Yeah. Recently, as we're recording this, it was made fun of. Oh, you had this great idea that you were going to do this here. Ha, ha, ha. You're an idiot. Why is he an idiot? He's an idiot because he's going to do what we say we are. That we're, He's going to do what we say we want to do. The idea that we seem to be clinging to today is that to protect our way of life, we have to supersede our ideals and our stated way of life. To protect the way that we want to live, we're going to be other than who we say we want to be and who we say we are. We're going to act outside of our stated intent. Right. And the question there is, so what are we protecting exactly? We're, we're, we're not – we're protecting an idea at this point. And as I say, I'm afraid to bring this up because I think people are going to hear partisan. I think people are going to hear naivete. But I don't understand how we get to where we're going to go if we don't act the way we want to act when we get there. We're not going to get to the top of the hill by, by, you know, by taking the flatland. We're not going to get to the, to the vantage point by walking downhill. We've said who we are. We've said where we want to be. We'll even go so far as sometimes as to say, look where we are. And it turns out we're not where we say we are. And, and Kirk, that line in this episode moved me because that thing nearly killed them twice. But when it's in trouble, Kirk does what Kirk has always said he's going to do. Kirk does for the Federation what the Federation has always said they're going to do. He, he, he is humanity at its best as far as he knows at that point. Could have blown Balok out of the sky. Could have left Balok there to die. Could have done yeah. any number of things that would have been acceptable to most people. Would have been acceptable to most people on the Enterprise. Would have been justifiable to most people on the Enterprise and probably even some of the people back at Federation. But what he did was what he what what we've said we wanted to do, what we've said we're going to do. And that to me was just that. Ah, that yeah. I mean, that to me was just just amazing, amazing to see. I, I, I can't possibly agree with you more. You know, he, he acts with compassion and humanity. Yeah. And, 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 and going yeah. back to what we were talking about a minute ago, he also faces his fear. I mean, there's got to yeah. be, he's got an, he knows that there is a chance that this is a trap, that they're going to get closer and that, you know, Balak's going to pull out something like Corbamite of his own and blow right. them all up. But you know what? He's got to face that fear because who we are supposed to be is who he wants to be. And so scary or not, here I come. Yeah. Well, and that was interesting to me, you know, not not to make light of it, but he grabs McCoy because, well, uh, yeah, obviously you want to grab a medical professional because if the aliens are there, they need help. Mm -hmm. If they are damaged, they need help. But he grabs Bailey and yes, he wants to educate Bailey and Mm -hmm. he's showing he's demonstrating by leadership what these high minded ideals truly are, Mm -hmm. which is great. At the same time, though, this could have gone horribly wrong. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, it, it, fortunately, the, the story is what it is and the outcome is what it is. But it could have gone horribly wrong. And and it could have been a trap, like you said. It, it could have been all these other things. But, you know, fortunately, we get the happy ending here that it is a learning experience for Bailey. 
and we see, you know, we, we've kind of, um, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here again, but, but this is idic. You know, the this Star Trek precept of infinite diversity and infinite combination, that the outcome of the joining of those two cultures results in something better than what you had before. Let's go back for a second, though. What if sure. what if this idea that um, McCoy talked about of uh, Bailey reminding him so much of himself when he was younger um, – Maybe this is Kurt taking a part of himself onto yeah. onto Baylock's ship. So it's not let, let let's make Bailey not a real person for a moment in the story, but let's make Bailey just a, you know a a part of Kirk's. Or maybe they're all. I mean, when I talk about the grief thing, maybe they're all just segments of the Enterprise, which of course would be segments of humanity as far as we're concerned, because the Enterprise is of course humans in the unknown, right? So right. I mean, maybe it is it is physically Kirk taking his fear and 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 making it see that what it's afraid of is not so scary. Yeah. Right? So it's not about because any one of us could do that. I mean fight or flight, right? Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. are the two things when you're scared. Anytime any of us walks into a scary situation, there's the chance that things can go horribly. And so maybe that's just, you know, maybe Kirk taking Bailey is just is really Kirk taking his fear and going ahead and doing what he what he has to do. Yeah. An enemy becomes a friend, a crewman transfers posts, and we decide whether this particular mission stands up to scrutiny decades later. Time now for the indeterminate number of questions, where we wrap up the episode and decide, you know, morals, meanings, do they stand the test of time, how does the production do, all that stuff. Um, I, I, I don't think I will surprise anyone when I say, boy, oh boy, does this episode hold up. <laughs> um, At least as far as I'm concerned. Well, I, I, I think it does. As a production, mm-hmm. I think that we're eh, I'm, I'm a little bit iffy on on certain things how can because, you possibly be okay well well here's why so <laughs> so now like i said earlier in the show mm-hmm. um this is one of those episodes i had on vhs i watched it over and over and in my in my youth i thought oh okay here's the story where the alien isn't really the alien but it's clint howard isn't that interesting and as a just from a production point of view you know if you were to do that now Evil Balak would be some fierce, horrific, totally convincing hologram, and little Balak would not be Clint Howard because that that's kind of you know when you're watching it through 21st century eyes, you go, okay, well th- this is kind of TV production at its you know budgeted <laughs> finest, um, but but the tension, the drama of the story, all of that other stuff hold up much better than I thought it would. And it truly was like rediscovering this show for, you know, or, or seeing it for the first time again. Um, so I, I enjoyed it so much more and I, I enjoyed it going back and rewatching it the multiple times in prep for doing this podcast. I have to say there's one thing where I might disagree with you a tiny bit. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. uh, the effects would have been different. And of course it wouldn't be Clint Howard. He's, he's far too old now. 
Well, I, I just mean that it wouldn't be a creepy looking little kid. Yeah. No, I think it might be a creepy looking little kid though, or it yeah. might be somebody tiny. I mean, maybe it'd be like an Oompa Loompa or something like that right. from the uh, from the Tim Burton version of of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The Oompa right. Loompas weren't little people; they were you know somebody shot small, or maybe like the Hobbit, or you know uh, some of the Hobbits or or, or things from uh, from the Lord of the Rings movies. All mm-hmm. six of them for some reason are <laughs> coming out now. Oy. Yeah, but that's a whole other thing. Um, Balok the puppet, though, had to be a little bit fake. Balok the puppet is sort of our indication. I don't just mean the audience's indication, but maybe the indication for the Enterprise as well that, okay, as scary as this looks, there there may not be so many reasons to fear. It's a little wooden. It's a little stiff. And that's because it turns out to be a marionette or a, or a puppet or a, or a maquette. Is that what you called it? Yes. Yes. It turns out to be something that's not real. Um, in the movie The Wizard of Oz... The wizard has unintelligently put himself right in the same room with the stuff that he's controlling. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The man behind the curtain is right there. How can I not pay attention? I can practically hear you breathing, you know, when I'm not hearing the fire go off on the side. It it feels to me like you would still need it. I I didn't see that as a failing, honestly. I saw that as as a hint. I saw that as an indicator. Because you're right. There are so many ways that you could make a much more convincing looking alien now. But you also could have done it then. I mean, dress up somebody in a Talosian outfit and, and sit them in front of the camera, you know, when we're supposed to be communicating with Balok. And then when we get there, find out it's a puppet. I like the fact that they showed us it was a puppet without making it 100% clear all the way through. Because mm-hmm. how stiff and how rigid that alien is, is comical when you watch it until you realize there was a reason that that was the case. So I, I kind of disagree with you. I mean, certainly the yeah, production yeah. would look different, but I feel like that was a conscious decision to make it not look real because that would have been easy. Just, you know, get the get the salt sucking monster out again or get, you know, right. get some other right. get some other actual you know alien that can move and that can be articulated. Well, it, it is their reactions that sell it. It, it is the story that sells it. Yeah. Um, I, I just feel like whenever we cut to Maquette Baylock, then it's kind of incongruous to the reaction, you know. But, well, but again, we're I mean, we're looking at it now, having seen this over and over again, <laughs> you know, well, decades that, but, later. But bear know. in mind, even the first time it was seen, you're watching it on television, and they're sitting in front of a ship that's a mile wide. Oh right, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they're going to be afraid of it. They're not going to go. Hey, wait a minute! I think that's just some guy pulling a lever. They're going to look at it right, and go, right. "Wow, he's got a great big ship, and also he is scary looking." You know, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I mean, that's I don't I don't to me, the only part of this production that could be faulted is the fact that they agree to give Bailey up like two minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's and that's the only but that is the only weakness of, of, of this show, I think, is that. And of course, we're, you know, approaching the 50th minute or the 48th minute. Yeah. So we got to wrap it up pretty quickly. And we want it to actually be a, a positive, you know, a, a good thing. And so they're going to find a way to do that. Um Kirk's just like, take my navigator, please. please. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, but I mean, seriously, that's the only weakness I see here. This is this to me. This is my in, in going back and rewatching for this. Um, this was a surprisingly wonderful episode that I like you had not realized how wonderful it was before. Yeah. And uh, and so far, uh, it's my favorite of the ones that we've rewatched. All right. Yeah. All right. So I, I think it's it's right up there for yeah. me. Um, I, I was just blown away. So uh, now the heavy part. Mm-hmm. What's the message or multiple messages? Well, face your fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems to be one. 
and it works out. Of course, it doesn't always work out when you face your fear, but it's a nice idea to think that it will. I mean, I love the message of, well, the one that I sort of went off on there towards the end of the last segment. I mean, you know, if there is something you want to be, the best way to be that thing is to be that thing. Yeah. You're not going to be the shining light on the hill by, you know, blowing out the candle the first time something scary comes by. So, um, I would like to think that that message stands. I don't, we're not necessarily getting as much proof of that today, but Mm -hmm. I, but I would like to think that it does. And then, and then if we assume that the examination of death, whether intentional or not, or the examination of the five stages of grief, whether intentional or not, grief rather, whether we assume that was intentional or not, um, it, it seems to fit over it very nicely. So I would say that works well too. Excellent. I, I think, you know, I wrote down a lot of, the messages that I was getting from this, um, well, don't lose your cool, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> you know, look, look rationally at what challenges you and embrace the risk of that, you know, yeah. embrace the risk of that mission instead of running away from it. Um, and this so, so innately Star Trek thing of not assuming that the enemy is really an enemy, that there is there is compassion and understanding to be found some common thread of humanity to be found, even in that, which we see as alien um, and an enemy to us. And that a little bit of compassion and certainly the cleverness go a long way because ultimately we're better off learning from each other than destroying each other. We make this very, very clear. So I think that both of us are going to have the same answer. Does the message hold up? Oh, yeah. A million times over, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, And we've added a new question here. Did this story challenge you at all to think critically or kind of maybe revisit any of your preconceived notions? Nope. (laughs) Really? Okay. Well, well, and, and, was... and by the way, I'm lying. No, it, <laughs> it absolutely did. I don't normally watch, you know, I don't normally watch things and say, oh, what psychological metaphor are we making with this episode? I mean, mm-hmm. um, why that whole uh, grief thing jumped out? It has to have been intentional because it just jumped out at me the second I started watching it. And I'm older than the last time I watched it because I probably mm-hmm. I don't I don't remember the last time I watched this episode. I know I know it because there were parts I remembered, but I couldn't tell you the last time I watched it. It's possible that I watched it when I was a kid because comedy really struck me when I was a kid. So the idea of McCoy saying, I'd be talking to myself while he's talking to himself, right. that's right. funny. And that would have been funny to the 12-year-old Ken, too, who would not have known about the you know five stages of grief. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. we'll talk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, so – I mean, this episode, I think, if you're, if you're looking at it as anything other than a monster movie, if you're looking at it as other anything than, you know, the, the madcap adventures of the crew of the Enterprise, if you're yeah. watching Star Trek to try to glean another meaning, you can't help but think critically, not only about every episode, but this one, absolutely. I mean, this one, they're handing you a royal flush because it turns out in what looks on paper just like... You know, facing off against the enemy, narrowly escaping yeah. death. Uh, suddenly, uh, this whole other—it's—it's it's like code. I mean, like suddenly, yeah. this whole other thing appears, and so certainly. And then, of course, you know, the whole thing about are we who we want to be versus—I mean, how do we? Yes. So I'd say yes. The whole critical yes, not critical, critical thinking. <laughs> yes. Right. 
Well, so I'm going to answer it in a slightly different way, but with the same intention. I, I, I'm, I'm going to say that it didn't make me, you know, rethink my preconceived notions like, uh, oh, it, you know, my attitude towards such and such is completely wrong. I need to shift my attitude. Yeah. But, but the messages here about, um, uh, about compassion and acceptance and not seeing the enemy as the enemy, mm-hmm. um, to me, those are the qualities that we all hope we have. You know, these are all the qualities that, you know, again, like you were saying in your uh, 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 recap at the end of the last segment, these are the ideals that we say that we have and we want to express in ourselves and to others. But we don't necessarily do that. Yeah. And certainly not all the time. And to me, this episode provides a great example of reflection of the benefit of doing that. So it's sort of uh, an inspiration in that respect to say, hey, we we have these high-minded ideals, so how about we use them, (laughs) you know? There's a phrase that you hear every now and then um, in different um, – both in religion and philosophy and other places too. Um, Fake it till you make it. And I think think a lot of people hate that because the assumption is you believe one thing but you're acting a different way. And I don't think that's what – fake it till you make it means i think fake it till you make it means act the way you want to be act the way you want to be even if it doesn't feel like what you want to do even if what you want to do is blow that thing out of space and then run screaming yeah you know be what you want to be fight fight the urge to not be what you want to be go ahead and be what you want to be even if it doesn't feel like you know it's the right thing to do right now because if you know it's the right thing to do Eventually, it'll be something that you will be able to do. And maybe right. I went a little, you know, sideways on that one. But yeah, I just I, I can't get over how. Yeah, I'm still I'm still stuck on that speech. So there you go. All right. Well, I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. And hey, hopefully you in the audience felt as passionately about this episode as we did. And we would love to hear what you think about it. Uh, so you can hit us up on Twitter where we are at mission log pod, or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mission log pod. You can also reach us on Skype where our handle is mission log pod, or you can call us on your old school communicator at three, two, three, five, two, two, five, six, four, one, leave us a message. Let us know what you thought. And we may play it on a future episode. Next week, boys and girls, back in the cage, we're headed to the menagerie. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. And now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go enjoy a snifter of Tranya. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.